When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week, we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to Death is released weekly, every Wednesday, and brought to you absolutely free. But if you want ad-free listening and exclusive bonuses... Subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus at tenderfootplus.com or on Apple Podcasts. Talking to Death is a production of Tenderfoot TV and iHeart Podcasts. Listener discretion is advised. And we're back. Talking to Death, you're listening to that. If you're an up and vanished listener and you migrated, thank you for coming. This will be, I think, very interesting for you. And if you have no clue what Up and Vanished is, I think that's kind of weird, but I'm glad that you're still listening to this show. Episode three of Up and Vanished just came out, and it's got some new revelations in it. And like I said last time, it's hard for me to even think objectively and zoom out and like answer what I think anyone would even want to know. Um, so Dylan, I'm going to kick it to you, because you just listened to the episode, and you tell me what stands out as like an objective listener, you think. Whew, what an action-packed episode. This one was, uh, it was crazy, you know, start to finish. It's, uh, there's a lot of information there. You talk to a lot of different kinds of people. This episode deals really heavily with law enforcement, all these different departments of, you know, police and state troopers and private investigators and city hall. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, what was your take on you know, not only dealing with these people, but collecting all the information and presenting it. I mean, how, how was that for you? I mean, if you look at all the other seasons of Up and Vanished, I mean, maybe not so much with season one because of that was a wildly different story. But for the most part, season two, three, other shows I've been a part of, Dead and Gone, there really isn't ever some super strong narrative about the police being corrupt or blatantly not doing their job. And it's just a thing that gets thrown around a lot in true crime documentaries uh, that, you know, the police aren't doing their job, they didn't do it, or they did it themselves or whatever. And so I, I never really have bought too much into that in the cases that I've been a part of because it wasn't necessarily true. Now, Tara Grinstead season one, there was proof that there was a tip that was submitted Back in 2005, you know, not too long after Tara went missing, that was in the case file. And so there was some real proof to the fact that it wasn't investigated to the fullest degree. And you could look at that as the reason why it went unsolved for 10 plus years, right? But in the other cases, 
for the most part, I've had pretty good relationships with, with law enforcement, um, which I've appreciated. You know, uh, season two, Crystal Risinger, the, the Colorado Bureau of Investigation has always been awesome. Even the, the county sheriff's been great. Season three, um, locally, we, did, we never made that much contact, but we were able to establish a relationship with the FBI through that. And though they were hesitant at first, they, they ended up going on record with us and actually having a conversation about how they handle cases like that and let us actually ask them questions about it. All that to say, to me, this is the first time that I've ever really strongly felt like the police are a major problem in this case. And I'm not saying it in the way of just pointing the finger like, you didn't do your job, I could do better. It's literally not at all what I'm trying to say. I'm just saying that I think if you're trying to break down why Florence Okpialik's disappearance remains unsolved, I think it is extreme incompetence from the known police department to the point where it makes you wonder what else is going on. I get that it's a hard place to live. I get that there are a lack of resources. But what I don't get is that one of those resources is the FBI. And I have had email correspondence with the FBI, and they told me that this case belongs to the Nome Police Department. Therefore, they weren't even going to comment on it to me. If you try to ask any question to the Nome PD, one, they don't want to answer, and anything I have heard from anyone who has gotten through to them, it's as if they don't take it seriously or even act like it's a case of theirs at all. And having looked into this for almost a year now, I strongly believe that in the early days especially, it was a lack of care and effort and just investigative work, basic investigative work that allowed this case to get to the point that it is today. Yeah, that's an interesting thing you said about, um, you know, the jurisdiction between the FBI and Nome PD. This might be a case where the boundary between these jurisdictions is allowing a crack to form. And it seems like this case and probably a lot of other cases tend to just fall through the crack. Uh, what do you have to say about these jurisdictional lines? I mean, if you remember what Andy Clamser, the private investigator, said in this episode, he mentioned that the known police department's always been pretty disorganized. And if you hear what Sue's talking about, it's it's like a revolving door of of new people in and out. They never really seem to keep a police chief for very long. And the way that it works from my understanding is that if the known police department wants assistance, then they can request that from the FBI and the FBI will come from Anchorage to help out. But only if they request it or in, I guess, if there was some other scenario where the FBI felt that there was something nefarious going on or something and was, was doing their own investigation into it. So they did do that one time. In the first couple of weeks after Florence went missing, they did request help from the FBI to help search. And they came out for a couple of days. And to my knowledge, they've never been back since then. But that's because they were never asked to come back. And I think what's happened is 
the FBI has never come back because they didn't think they needed their help or weren't considering that. And the known PD never asked for help, also never did anything either. We touched on it in the episode, but known PD has a very long history of mismanagement. Well, they've, they've also killed a girl before. And this, this isn't the same people, so I'm not going to, you know, make that kind of... None of the people who work there now were, were, were there or a part of that, right? But if you're working for a department that has a dark history like that, where one of your former officers murdered a Native woman, then I, I, I would just, I would think, if I was ever a police chief there, that one of my primary goals outside of serving and protecting, right, would be to regain the trust of the community because the people before me totally broke it, right? And, and it's, from what I've seen and who people I've talked to and the way they've been to us, it doesn't seem like that matters at all or has ever been a factor to them. One of the, one of the things I want to mention is I think this this weirdly goes two different ways. I think a big thing might be that the Nome Police Department, I don't think they're prepared to handle a homicide investigation. I don't think they have the tools or experience to do that. And I think it's weird that the ABI or FBI has given them responsibility over this case when I think the FBI is better suited to investigate a homicide and interrogate these people and do these. I don't think Nome, it's a small town. Any small town is never historically good at investigating a homicide. I mean, I think that where the case stands today, that is 100% true. They don't have the resources to solve this now. I think they did have the resources to solve it then because it didn't inv- they didn't find anything from the search anyway. But there were people, there were names, there were persons of interest that to my knowledge and, and until proven wrong, and I've looked very hard, and I, and I, would, I would love to be surprised by this and find out that it actually is true. But to my knowledge, they've never even interrogated any person of interest in, in this case, even the person who had her thanks. And so it, that what, you, you missed the opportunity to potentially solve this. You let a case get cold because you didn't do what I think are basic steps in investigating anything. And I think that because it was missed then and by different people, they set the known PD up for future failure. And now it's in a place where if you have persons of interest that are way long gone in other faraway places, yeah, no shit, you don't have the resources to do that. We've been met with that same challenge. And it's hard for us when it's our full-time focus and we don't have to do their day-to-day. And so I understand how it would be almost near impossible now, but that signals to me that they should be more open and willing to cooperate and just be an open book, especially if you weren't the ones who were there beforehand. But there's a there's an ego, there's a there's all the the bad shit that you could read about some cops, not all cops, but some cops. All the fucking markings of that are here. 
if by some chance this episode makes its way back to Gnome PD and someone's listening, do you have a message for them, something you'd like them to hear? I'm open to talk at any time. I, I realize that you don't want to. That's okay. It was never my plan or intention to have some gotcha moment with you. I'm not trying to point the finger at anybody. And like I said before, none of you were really even there when this happened, so it's not even possible for me to do that. But I, I think that, you know, when I had that first conversation with Crockett a long time ago now, I tried to even tape that you didn't hear because I cut it out. I, I was telling him about the resources that I thought I could help give to them for them to use. And I, I just, there was no interest in doing that. So Gnome PD, they're not the only, uh, the only sheriffs in town, so to say. Also, Alaska State Troopers are a big deal there. Both exist on Front Street, right there in Nome. They each have their own department, their own office space. Uh, maybe this is a good transition to start talking about Joseph Balderas because Joseph's case is under the purview of AST. How is it dealing with them and, and what's your take on them? So because Joseph went missing way outside of town, right? It was miles and miles outside of the actual downtown city. So Flo went missing on West Beach and that's pretty close to the downtown area of Nome. And that's within the Nome police jurisdiction Cases that are out in the wildlife frontier of Alaska, way outside of the city, those are cases that automatically get assigned to the Alaska State Troopers, from what I've, I've gathered. And so because Joseph likely went missing out there, or at least it appears that he did, his truck was found out there, it appears to be the last place he was, unless something else happened. Um, but on the surface... This would be a case that the Alaska State Troopers would take on because of that. And so I did have a brief conversation with a, a trooper who works in Nome at the office there. I think you guys were both there when we did that. And she was, you know, she was open enough, more of a conversation than we ever have with anyone at Nome PD. But it, it seemed to me like Joseph's case specifically, they had completely wrapped up and decided that it was a bear, even though we can't prove it was in the end. And I'm not saying that I know what it is or not, but Andy Klamser has shared with me a lot more details about his disappearance that weren't included in the podcast episode in episode three yet. Um, and there are just some major unanswered questions that you just can't ignore. And we're going to get to that actually later on in the series. It, it comes back. I guess I could just say this now, but we've been working with Andy really ever since that first meeting with him. And he's been a huge help for Florence's investigation and kind of just navigating Alaska to begin with. And he's and the dude has so many resources and expertise. He's he was a, a Alaska cop detective for twenty plus years, so he's an ex cop, and he he gets it. And so I really put a lot of credence into what he says, and he has literally hundreds of pages of 
investigative work and interviews and tape with people in Joseph's case that he's given us. And we've scoured for months. And there are just some major unanswered questions in there that you cannot ignore. And the more I, I, I look into it, the fact that they never found anything to me, like they didn't find his backpack or a phone or a piece of clothing or whatever, right? Just thinking logically, if he left his truck and, and walked out there to the river, how far could someone actually go? Like within reason, right? Like how, how far could he have possibly gone? There's got to be like a finite radius of what that is. And they searched that and searched way beyond that with dogs. It's like he just wasn't there. If, if he is there and they didn't find him, that would be tragic. But it is so odd that they didn't. And I, I'd love to search again. But I, that coupled with a few of the stories about the roommate, which we'll get into later on in the series, just makes me think that there's something else going on. And it starts to look and smell a lot like Florence's disappearance, really. So Andy gives you uh, a really hot tip near the end of the episode. He um, he tells you that it may be worth, instead of reaching out to known PD to no avail, it may be worth overstepping them and going straight to the city manager at City Hall to get the information you're looking for. How useful of a tip was that? I mean, it worked. <laughs> uh, props to Andy, because that... that I did not think that was going to work. Um, I had lost faith in everything after that first exchange with no PD. But damn, it, it worked. Then we got an email again saying that we're denied. Even though we've already been sent this. So either they got their wires crossed and thought that it wasn't sent or the person who sent it didn't say that they sent it and pretended like they didn't. Or they changed their mind and talked to Known PD or whoever it was and wanted to basically say, even though you have this, you can't have it. <laughs> um, but that's not how it works in the real world. And we do have it. And I'm glad that we do. Because I don't think that that information is being used appropriately anywhere else right now. So I'd rather put it to good use. So they're saying that there is an active and ongoing investigation into the matter of Oregon John. When they've never mentioned or named a suspect ever. Now we're making the jump and assumption that they're referring to Florence Okpialik's case. And there's a long list of things on that, on that report. Actually, missing person is on there. That he was a, we, that was never talked about. Yeah, and I'll get into that in the next episode, but I'll tell you now. But, um, I mean, there's 93 incidents on that report, and I wasn't about to read not all 93 of them for you. I just went from the bottom, which would be back to starting in 2016, which is when I believe he moved there. And I just started rattling off, going up the list closer and closer to 2020 all of the major charges that to me stood out like they were a problem. There's other incidents in there that are lesser offenses or even some exchanges that I don't really fully understand what it was because <laughs> they don't really unpack it all the way. 
but in terms of trying to understand the kind of person that you may be dealing with, I read off in order going closer and closer to the date that Florence disappeared. And, we, and we'll get into this more in the next episode and further on in the series, but when this was the main thing that I had on this person, I couldn't help but analyze it. And there was a pattern I sort of saw where the closer you got to the date of Florence's disappearance in, in late August, there is a genuine, very real uptick in his run-ins with the law. It just seems to get more and more and more and worse and worse. And then on the day she went missing, day after, there are two reports or two incident reports and they're just little log lines and it has the, the names of the officers. And there's two different officers. And it, it, all it says is missing person. So missing person, missing person, meaning that he was interacted with by the known PD in relation to Flo's disappearance. To my knowledge, that is the extent of what they've done investigating Oregon John. I hope that isn't true. But I've never heard about any sort of in, you know, legitimate interrogation. I think that what we're looking at in that document is it. What can people expect from episode four? Can you give us any little tidbits? So far, the narrative has been going really just one way. And to me, to me that's always interesting, whether it's me watching a true crime documentary or listening to a true crime podcast or investigating a real true crime myself, when all things start pointing in one direction really so quickly, it makes you want to step back and reevaluate and make sure that there's not just a whole bunch of biases here that are sending you this direction and that it is correct. Then there's the other part of me that comes out that, that really truly to my core believes that I think a majority of the time, it's always the simplest answer. Not every time, but a majority of the time. Maybe that's 51%. But in my experiences and what I believe, my opinion is that sometimes if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck, it's just a duck, man. And in this case, it sent us directly to Oregon John. Now, in episode four, we hear for the first time another theory. New names emerge. It starts to paint a picture, a clearer picture of what may have transpired that night. But John is still in that picture. My guest today is Sarah Turney. She is, I mean one of the strongest people I've ever met. And I don't mean physical strength. I mean, she might be physically stronger than me too. That's, that's probably a lot of people. What she's endured in her life is almost uncomparable. And the way that she holds herself and what she's been able to create out of what she's experienced in her life is just tremendous. 
I admire it so much. And if you don't know much about her story, we get all the way into it in today's episode. Essentially, she believes that her father killed her sister. And there is a mountain of evidence to support that. This has been a huge part of her life, obviously. And she has turned this experience into very popular true crime podcasts and doing it in a way that is more respectful than pretty much anyone out there, I'd say. Because of her experience, she has a special connection with these families and she can talk to them on a level that almost no one else in the world could. And she's taken that and turned it into some of the best storytelling and positive impact being made in this genre. She has a a new podcast that's out now that has been crushing it on the charts. It's called Media Pressure. It's hosted by Julie Murray, the sister of Maura Murray, who went missing 20 years ago now. And she, too, is absolutely phenomenal. I was humbled that she wanted to even be on this show, and I had a really enjoyable conversation with her. And I also just love how she can be so relatable in every way possible to almost anybody. And we talk a lot about our feelings about true crime, podcasts, and you know when, it, when you get down to it, what it really takes to do this. And we have some shared experiences in that. And also, we had a really fun night afterwards. <laughs> um, I think Dylan still has a headache. I remember most of that night. Yeah, right, exactly. I know you'll love this interview, and please check out her new podcast, Media Pressure. It's out now, and her other podcast, Voices for Justice. Check one. We rolling? Okay. Oh, we're rolling. All right. We can just keep going. Yeah. Then I'll like reset it. Yeah. yeah. I'm so, cool like, with you that. You met with your dad. That's, yeah. How, how was that? Uh, intense for sure. But this time I was ready. So I'd met with him in the past, but I kind of just went there asking questions. I didn't really have anything prepared. And this time I had a whole list of questions, including like quotes from him. Uh, so I thought it was pretty good. I think it's the closest thing to like a cross-examination that we'll ever get. Wow. So, so was he a willing participant in this? Oh, 100%. He was so excited. He do, he does everything he can now to talk about Alyssa. Why is that? I don't know. I think it's maybe because he thinks that he's free and clear. Um, but he certainly never did media when we needed it. Yeah. And how do you feel about that part of it? I don't know. It's like, it's just him. You know what I mean? It's It's everything I anticipated. He's just always been this way. He's just not a good person. So really, you're not even surprised by him at all anymore? No. No. Wow. No, you, you're you like, what did you do on Tuesday? And he's like, well, the war on drugs, what you need to understand about that. And it's just, it, it's the, the same. The war on drugs? <laughs> I know. That's, he's watching too much Fox News or something. <laughs> he is 100% <laughs> watching too much Fox News. Um, yeah, it's just the same shit I heard growing up, you know? But there will be some people who are listening to this who don't know your story. And I'd like to just recap it a little bit for those who may not have heard about this before what happened to your family 
Yeah, I'll keep it brief. As okay, brief yeah, yeah. As I, can. I mean, obviously, it's we could do an crazy. entire 10 episodes if we'd like. But. <sighs> I know, right? A new season. Um, <laughs> For real. Yeah, so 2001, I was 12. My sister was 17. Her name's Alyssa Turney, and it was the last day of school for both of us. I come home, and she's not there, and she's been missing ever since. Um, I became the police contact when I was a teenager, and eventually they sat me down and said, we think your dad killed your sister. We can't do anything. Your best chance is to get media. And that's why I'm in true crime today. I uh, had no luck with major media, big outlets. I only had luck with independent content creators, podcasters, YouTubers. And then eventually I was encouraged to make my own content. And I did. Um, Eventually in 2020, my dad was arrested. And unfortunately, last year he was acquitted. So the police told you that they think he did it. Yeah. And we just can't do anything about it? Yeah. I mean, at first they told me that they were going to arrest him because my father's also a domestic terrorist, <laughs> uh, okay. which is insane. Like the story is just, the, it's, the more you go into it, the crazier it is. Um, but yeah, he was arrested in 2010, or I'm sorry, 20, 2008, it's been so long. He was arrested for basically like the biggest pipe bomb and gun bust in Phoenix history, which was a surprise to me. I was going to college and the bombs were like 100 feet from my head. Whoa. Um, yeah, so he served about 10 years for that. And the police said, well, when he gets out for that, like the second he gets out, we're going to arrest him for your sister's murder. We don't want to arrest him now or charge him with anything because he'll be able to serve the sentences um, side by side, basically. So they told me they were going to. And then they told me that they weren't. So in your opinion, what went wrong here? What are the key things that went wrong to end up where we are today? I mean, obviously, I think that first day that my sister went missing, everything was wrong. Not a single police officer came to our house. I wasn't interviewed for seven years, just about. Um, Nobody was. There was no investigation for almost a decade. And of course, in that time, they lost everything. Cell phone records, text logs, um, video surveillance. They just lost it all. And then by the time we got to court, it's my opinion Um, that the state was really so wrapped up in another case that they had just finished. It was actually the uh, Brian Patrick Miller serial killer case. And then they finally said, just a few weeks before trial, well, now we have time to allocate to Alyssa's case. And when we finally started talking about details, I um, I kept being told, well, it's too late now. That would have been great, but we can't admit that as evidence because it's too late. Like what? What's too late? Yeah, I mean, like, like which, like which part of it was too late for them? Yeah, like, all these statements that I brought statements up. Statements are too late. Yeah, and I'd brought these things up three years. Like the second my dad was arrested, I was like, "Here's everything I have. How can I help?" Uh, and try to tell them all these things, and they didn't want to really talk to me until just a few weeks before trial. So even one of my dad's ex-wives came forward and wanted to talk about, you know, her being sexually abused by him. He's been accused by at least four women of sexual abuse dating back to the 70s. And it was things like that. They were like, it's too late. It's just hard for me to fathom that it wouldn't be a bigger deal at that time that this young girl's missing. How did that happen? I think it was a few different factors. One, Phoenix is huge. We're the fifth largest city in the United States. Uh, Our police force has almost no funding. But on top of that, more importantly, my dad used to be a cop in the 1970s. And so while he was telling the whole family that he was super afraid for my sister, that he thought something really bad happened right away, he called the police and said, listen, my 17-year-old rebellious daughter is on drugs and ran away to her aunt's house in California which of course isn't going to elicit any response. He said, I have a rebellious teenager and I know exactly where she's at. 
So they didn't do anything. So those statements definitely stalled police investigating. Absolutely. They, sure. they admitted that in court. So all these years later, and this has been something that you've dealt with in your life for a long time now. How do you summarize what you think happened that day? It's hard. I think that he'd actually planned something the year before she went missing. Um, basically, on the last day of her sophomore year, he there's allegations that he took her to the middle of the desert, tried to sexually assault her. She stayed calm. They got home and she ran to a neighbor's house begging for help. He told the neighbor that she was on a hallucinogenic drug and the neighbor didn't really do anything. From there, she demanded to live with our brothers and she did for that entire summer. And my dad wrote a letter to her high school and said Alyssa ran away from home. So this happened exactly one year before she actually went missing. So I think that that was his plan. I think that he wanted to do it that year, Mm. but for some reason couldn't. And so he took her out of school on the last day, knowing that nobody was going to call because she wasn't going to be absent the next day. He'd have basically all summer to figure out what he was going to do. And then he took her out somewhere and did something. So is it your belief or feeling that your dad wanted to kill her? Absolutely. Yeah. She was telling everybody that she was being sexually abused. He had already called CPS preemptively and said, my daughter's going to call and lie and say that I'm sexually abusing her because she wants a car. It was just getting worse and it was clearly escalating. Even about a year before she went missing, he, my father made a phone call And he said something to the effect of that he's getting older and losing his temperament and that he can't continue doing nice things for people who lie about him. What do you mean by that? I don't know. I mean, I think that he was just really afraid that it was all going to come out. And I mean, obviously it all did. This person being your dad, what do you think makes somebody like this? I mean, I know that's just a almost could be a philosophical philosophical question at some point but or a uh, psychoanalysis but i don't know what have you thought about why why was he like this why did why does he do this why why did he do that well i think in his mind his ego just wouldn't let him be perceived that way he's still that way today he can't see himself as anything but a martyr a victim and really like this action hero of his own story he can't own up to anything and he never has been able to so i think that it was either kill her or the truth was going to come out so you think that all of this was likely because he wanted to in some sick way maintain his character or his self-belief that he's not a bad guy or something or his portrayal of that like covering up what he did that was so awful Absolutely. Yeah, he's always been that way. When I asked him if he denied all the allegations of sexual abuse from all the women, he said, "Um, what I need to understand is that when women are rejected, they lie. And that he's dealt with about 50 accusations like that. It's just insane. It's a lot of them. Yeah, that's a lot. How did you deal with how you felt about it? I mean, was there I'm sure there's anger. And and what, what, what did that feel like? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's more like passion and determination. Um, because it's not about me, it's about my sister. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think the best way to get justice for her is just for the world to know her story. And she's already helped so many people. So it's, I know it kind of sounds crazy, but it's so much less about anger because I spent so many years taking care of my dad. So many from 
when Alyssa was gone, when I was 12, um, through my college years, I took care of him. Even during his bomb case, I would file his legal motions for him. So I think it was more heartbreak and then mm. passion just to do the right thing. It, it's exhausting, but in my mind, it's very black and white. It's, we know what happened. I need to get media for my sister. I need to fight for my sister. And that's the end of it. Do you remember a moment when you switched from supporting your father to not anymore? I get asked that question all the time, and I think it was really gradual, to be honest. Yeah. Um, there are a few moments I can pick out for sure. Like, I remember, because um, I I ended up dropping out of high school. I had a really bad, crazy teenagehood. And I dropped out of high school, determined to go to college, and I did. I uh, graduated debt-free at the top of my class. Nice. And I, yeah, and I like bought a home. I was so proud of myself, all while working full-time. I had no support. And I remember he called, because he's in prison, right? So I can't call him. And he called me and I was like, dad, like I did it. Like I graduated, like I have, you know, super high GPA. Like this is amazing. Mm -hmm. And he was like, yeah, but you know, your mom, my mother who's deceased, who died when I was four, your mom has been coming to me in my prison cell and talking to me. And she's just really disappointed that you didn't graduate from high school. Your deceased mother? Yes. The ghost of your mom has been visiting your dad and saying that she's disappointed in you. Yes. While he's in prison. Yes. So that was one moment that, you know, it wasn't like, oh, my gosh, he killed Alyssa. It was like... But you put, your your bubble was bursted there. I mean, mm -hmm. you had, you were proud, rightfully so. You did some really cool shit. And then you're like, what the hell? Or what was your reaction to that? Yeah, I was just like, oh, wow. I, I mean, I don't remember what I said, right? I yeah. would do anything for those tapes. I would love to hear them. Yeah, like, you're, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they exist somewhere. <laughs> right. Um, but I, that really just opened my mind to like, wow, I don't think that he's the guy I thought he was. Like, this is a really cruel thing to do to the only child who's like supporting you at this point. And then just over time, it just made more and more sense. I found this like map in my house of the desert that had all these random points uh, circled on them. And my boyfriend at the time looked it up and all the coordinates were like in the middle of the desert. And then I turned to that boyfriend who lived with me and my dad since um, when we were 17, he moved in. And um, I said, do you think my dad could have done this? Could he have killed Alyssa? And he turned to me and he's like, Sarah, everyone thinks your dad killed Alyssa. Mm. Um, so I was the last one. All my siblings believed it before I did. And then slowly over time, I just came to the realization. Why was that, you think? That it maybe have maybe took you a little bit longer to realize that. I mean, obviously, I, I can make some assumptions here as to why that would be. But in, in hindsight, why do you think it was you were slower to conceptualize, hey, maybe the, maybe he's a bad guy who killed my sister? I think it's a few things, right? I have this like blinding optimism in me that I think is uh, really like a survival instinct. What, um, okay, explain that, though. What, what, <laughs> like in what ways? In what other ways, too? I mean, like when the worst shit happens, I'm like, it's going to be okay. Like, every, you know, this is a tough moment and we're going to get through it. And, like, this sucks. But like, hey, we're going to be good, guys. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, I have this like Miss Rachel blinding optimism that really keeps me going. And I'm so thankful for that, that, that all of this hasn't turned me really cold. Right. Um, but also, you know, I was such a daddy's girl when I was like a crazy teenager. He would completely enable me. I was able to leave the house for weeks at a time. When I was like 15, I was dating like a 19-year-old drug dealer and living at his house. And my dad knew that. Whoa. Um, yeah, he would give me money for anything so I cool wanted. So cool by those standards a long time ago, probably not good stuff to do in, uh, as a dad, though. So were you <laughs> kind of grappling? I mean, I'm sure you had like this whole other life where you viewed your dad in a different light, yeah. right? And yeah. then you had to like undo that in some way or something. 
Absolutely. I thought he was the cool dad, and so did my friends. If we were at a party, we ran out of gas, he would come right there and pick us up and not tell their parents. And um, yeah, so I, I thought that he was amazing. But as I got older and started, you know, caring for children and became an adult, I looked back and was like, well, you know, that's not love. <laughs> that's, that's not right. love. Um, that is clearly just, I mean, in my mind, he would always say like, um, you know, Sarah, I'm so sorry about your life. Like here, and we had no money. He was on disability. He hasn't worked since the nineties, but he always had, you know, 500 bucks to give me here and there. And he's mm. like, I'm so sorry about your life. And looking back. What do you mean it, by that? Yeah, I mean, now looking back, I think it was the guilt. I mean, I think it was guilt about Alyssa. It was guilt that um, after Alyssa was gone, he was in such a deep depression all the time. It was unreal. Um, He wouldn't get out of bed for days. He would, you know, I would do things like go get him Sonic. And if the ice wasn't right, he'd throw it against the wall and scream at me. It was just, I don't know. He was just extremely abusive looking back. During that time period, what was your dad saying in terms of what he thought may have happened to her? He would never talk about Alyssa. I mean, he, he wasn't thinking out loud, like, where could she be or who took her or where'd she go? No, no. And the second that the police started investigating is pretty much when he gave the, the responsibility over to me. He said, I'm too sick. I can't handle this. It's too stressful. You be the, the contact. Um, but no, he never really talked about it. I was completely kept in the dark. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, A military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you could summarize how this has 
shaped you as a human how would you do that oh gosh um I mean, it's changed everything, right? I never expected this to be my career path, for one. Mm-hmm. Um, let alone my passion. More so than my career is just my passion and helping people. Um, also, you know, I have to say that it's made me extremely... Like, I've lost all faith in the justice system. There's there's no logic in the justice system much of the time. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, the hardest part for me, is even though I do have that blinding optimism, when it comes to the law and who has a better lawyer, I I feel like it's all kind of bullshit. Um, So uh, on one hand, I feel this immense sense of, I don't know, like justice, right? Because people can take these stories into their own hands like I did. You know, that wasn't happening when I first started. What I was doing, not a lot of people were doing. And now things have changed so much. And I think that that's really shaped who I am as um, having this effect on true crime that I never intended and never realized until just recently. So this has shaped everything about me. When you started doing that, and you were one of the first people to to do something like that, where you were reaching out to the public in a way that a lot of other families may have not done in that sort of circumstance before, what did that feel like? Did you feel like a fish out of water? Did you know what you were doing or what your objective was or where you wanted to go with this? What was your thought line when you started doing stuff like that? I had no idea what I was doing. I had no plan. I had nothing. What did you want, though? Like, what, what what was the blanket end goal? Just to to hopefully some find some sort of answer or get someone's attention? Or what was the idea? Yeah, I mean, the police told me to get media. So that was my first goal was let's just get media and have everybody talking about Alyssa that I can. Um, and over time, you know, I think that the goal kind of changed, not just for media, but just for people to hear her story and be affected by her story. Um, But certainly, I was flying by the seat of my pants, especially with TikTok. I had like no idea what I was doing. I just started making videos and started making content. And I was mortified. Like, before I started this, I think I had like three pictures of my dogs on Instagram and like, you know, 20 (laughs) followers that were all friends and family. Yeah, Yeah, you know, yeah, you can scroll back. The good old days, yeah. Yeah, Exactly. Nice blurry uh, 2014 (laughs) pictures or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, I had no idea what I was doing and I was just taking it day by day. But when I saw the support for me, that, and the support for Alyssa, really, that changed everything. I had never had that sense of community. You know, I I have five siblings, I have four older brothers and Alyssa, and I was doing this all alone. But when the internet surrounded me with love, that gave me so much confidence. It gave me so much hope and it just propelled me forward. Describe to me what that is exactly. For someone who may not know specifically what you mean, when the internet sort of became a, a support system of sorts through your work, in what way did in what way did that happen, and what did that feel like? Yeah, it, it happened slowly, right? You know, I had your Twitter and Instagram and Facebook with like a few thousand followers, and mm-hmm. that was nice. And I would respond to messages all day, <laughs> messages of support mostly. What are they saying to you? Um, like, we love you, we support you, we want justice for Alyssa. Just strangers, right? Oh, yeah, total strangers. You know, this is just bullshit what happened. Like, people were mad for Alyssa. Do you feel validated through that? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, And I think so many people identify with her story. You know, being sexually abused is not a unique story, unfortunately, especially by a non-custodial Mm -hmm. step-parent. But, yeah, and then TikTok changed everything oh my gosh i didn't even realize i posted that first video and i was like this isn't gonna get any views like this is so mortifying i feel like such a nerd like 
And then it just went viral. And before I knew it, I had a million people behind me rallying, wanting more information, wanting me to answer questions, saying really nice things. And they really did become like family to me. As as parasocial as that might sound, like when I had nobody, I had them. Your podcast, the new one about Moore Murray with yeah. her sister is called Media Pressure. It's an amazing show, by the way. Um, heartbreaking story. Do you ever feel any media pressure yourself? Yeah. I mean, that's the whole concept behind the podcast. Yeah. But like, how do you feel? Yeah. I mean, my whole journey has been about getting media pressure. And I think I feel media pressure in different ways. You know, all the wonderful ways that it helped my sister's story get out there. Mm -hmm. Um, But also now, I think the pressure of being this person who speaks about ethics and true crime. That's what I really mean. Yeah. No, I figured. Um, What's that? Yeah. What what is that to you? I don't know. I mean, I feel like it was so thrust upon me. Um, But also, obviously, I did it myself. Uh, Basically, when my dad got arrested, I felt this huge weight lifted off my shoulders that I didn't have to be the perfect family member so that I could get as many interviews as possible for my sister. And it's not that I was lying. It's that I was a doormat and that people could say the most horrendous shit to me. They could ask me to cry. They could ask me to write their script for them. They could ask me to edit their audio for them, which now as a creator is fucking crazy to me. Explain um, to me like what you were going through in, that, in those times. Give me some examples of that. What do you mean? Yeah, I mean, I was doing interviews multiple times a week, and this was on top of my full-time job and making the podcast. So, I mean, I would do interviews at 11 p.m. if somebody wanted to. Um, I've been asked by a huge creator to review the script and edit it before they film their video about my sister. Um, it's stuff like that. And I don't. It, it's not about calling people out. It's about recognizing what families go through. Mm-hmm. But that was, you know, pretty common. Of course, there were, like, so many amazing people along the way. Sure. But also, I was the first family member that so many people interviewed. So I don't think it was necessarily malicious. I think people just didn't know. You took the brunt of it. Yeah. It sounds exhausting. It was exhausting. Did you feel like at some points that you were just being used for a, a narrative? Absolutely. I mean, I would sit down in interviews and they'd be like, okay, tell your story. Like, uh, go, right? Yeah. 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 And you're like, what? Like, uh, you don't have any questions or thoughts? <laughs> right? yeah. yeah. Well, and I could tell that they didn't, you know, prepare. But I, uh-huh. at that time, I didn't care. It was all about Alyssa. I really didn't care. Yeah. Like, it, you know, it is what it is. Uh, this is what I've decided to do. And I will take on this pain and this burden for my sister because it's not about me. Um, and then when my dad got arrested and I became a creator covering other people's stories, I was like, holy shit, I would never do this to people. It's kind of like like if you've ever had a job where you're in retail or server, whatever. Some, I've been some, a server for years. Well, I was a server for years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was I was I mean, I'm uh, still part time at Chili's, but like that's just, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> no, I was the world's worst waitress. I was the worst one. Really? I, I, I may have been worse. I don't know. Let's hear it then. Um, I worked at TJ Friday's. Um, I would have like two tables and then like beg the other servers to take mine because I was so scared. And eventually they put me on the patio in summer, mm-hmm. which meant there was like one table a day. I was I would walk with like three dollars. Wow. But you were there for like eight hours and did side work and yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> making like one dollar and 30 cents an hour or whatever it was. Exactly. That's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be the guy who we get really busy and I would just be sitting there at the computer putting stuff in and I go oh no oh no and I would see a table of like six people that was my table that's looking around wondering where their food is and I realize I forgot to ring it in and I have no clue what it is (laughs) and there's no way I can go ask them what they ordered an hour later 
So the only way out of this is I got to go fire in some things that are <laughs> random oh and act like the kitchen screwed it up. Um, that was like a moment where you're like, maybe I should just quit now. You know, maybe maybe I just start over entirely, clean slate, walk out the door. That'd be rude, but God, it was it was so uncomfortable. Yeah, I was I was not a good server. I was I was nice, but yeah. I, I, I'm not I'm I'm not good at it. Same, same. I'm not, I'm not ashamed to say it either. No, it's a really hard job. <laughs> it is. A hard I respect job. the yeah. hell. I, there of are servers. good servers and bartenders. Like I know when they are and when they are not, and I'm mm-hmm. not one of them. Yeah, <laughs> so. I always tip the ones that seem really like I tip them really well. Obvious, I always tip. But you tip the bad ones too, because I, I even yeah. tip the bad ones. Oh, I tip them like if they seem overwhelmed. I'm like, here, honey. Like I know you're not going to make money. Yeah, like here's an extra twenty or this whatever. Is like right now, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So back to the media pressure that you may feel today. You know, you, you started on this journey to get justice for your sister and you use the media in a way that a lot of people really hadn't yet and kind of learned your own way through that. And it's really fucking awesome what you've done. And I think it's amazing. And you've paved the way for so many other people to do the same thing and shown just the world and the internet that what you're doing does matter and can have an impact. Now that you are here as a as a true crime podcaster and you are still an advocate for not only your sister but other families as well and you probably get all these messages and stuff do you ever feel the pressure of upholding that in any sort of way because you're also just a person at the end of the day who probably gets tired like I do right Yeah a thousand percent I think the hardest part of my job now is not being able to get to everybody Mm -hmm. and not being able to spend that quality time with these families that I used to be able to. I just, Mm. there's not enough of me to go around. So I am constantly feeling like I'm disappointing families because I can't get back to them or, you know, I can't produce an episode for them very quickly. And Mm -hmm. that's the hardest part. And I'm sure they don't feel that way. I just remember. But you want to, right? Like, of course. If you could, if there could be a, if you could clone yourself, you you do it all, right? I would imagine. You seem like you would. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. Because these families need people to talk to that get it, that get what they're going through, and it's a terribly unique experience that I'm glad not everybody can relate to. Sure. But it's just it, it makes a difference when you're talking to somebody who truly knows what you're going through. And I'm sure a lot of it's you know, on just the very big from the very beginning is just the knowledge of them knowing that you have. Mm-hmm. So knowing that they're not speaking to somebody who has no damn clue what they're talking about. There's got to be almost an immediate sort of underlying trust that you could probably not even, it's hard to probably even put into words, I would imagine. Just like a acknowledgement of something or what is it like to you when people come to you like that and sort of have that trust already with you well you know when i approach people or they approach me i never assume that they know who i am or what of my course, story yes. is you know i don't go into it like hello i'm the sarah attorney you, you don't <laughs> i thought you did <laughs> um, starting now <laughs> right yes that's exactly how i'm going to go into interviews now no so you know I'll, at the top of an interview you know i'll tell them the same things it's like if you say something you don't want in the podcast, let me know. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to edit it out. If you have any questions off the record, I'm happy to answer them. You know, and really throughout the interview process, it just kind of comes out. They'll say something and I'll mm-hmm. be like, you know, I'm not sure if you know, but I, I do have a missing sister, so I completely relate to this. Mm-hmm. And this is what I experienced. How do you feel about this? Yeah. Um, so it really just comes out naturally in conversation. And I love that. I'll often get to the end of an interview and a family 
families will always tell me, like, I've never had an interview like this before. No, yeah, that's awesome. Um, because they probably haven't. Um, they probably never felt like they were in what could almost be more of a therapy session than in, in a good way, not yeah, like yeah. a negative uh, connotation there. Like uh, cathartic, we're both kind of reliving and sharing experiences in a way and learning more about each other, pushing something forward in a positive direction. Like that's... It's not always like that when there's a journalist and a subject. It's usually the opposite. It, like in most true crime stories, it it's a journalist who isn't a part of that traditionally. But if someone who has experienced something and that comes out in your own questioning or curiosity or way of relating, that's got to feel really grounding to, to people, I feel like. I am really curious what your thoughts on true crime are. I feel like there's a good, bad, and ugly. Mm -hmm. But what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I feel the same, right? I think on its best day, it helps these cases, generates tips, helps law enforcement put pieces of the puzzle together, supports these families. On the worst days, it hinders cases and destroys them forever. Um, I think that there's a fine line between caring about a case and becoming so obsessive with it that you actually do harm. And I feel like that does happen, unfortunately. You see these larger-than-life cases. I think Delphi is a great example right now. Sure. Where I think a lot of people are doing harm. Just by internet sleuthing and just asserting random craziness, like that's not, that sometimes is unfounded or incorrect, basically, or what? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the public's interest was so great that they needed to leak the crime scene photos of two children. Yeah, who, how did that happen? Who did that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I don't... There was, a, there was uh, a person, right? There was a person. And, you know, I don't want to get into all that because yeah, the Delphi people will be after me. Um, and I'm just not ready for that. Like, I, I'm at a point in my life where I'm looking for more peace in true crime, <laughs> yeah. to be honest. You don't mean... You mean to tell me you don't want people to come on your Instagram and TikTok and talk shit right now? I mean, they can. Go for <laughs> I'm it. Just Go for it. Yeah, I, you're you like, know? please, can we minimize the nonsense? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it's just, it, you know, just like Maura Murray. Mm -hmm. I remember... Um, a few years ago, I made some tweet or something because I used to, you know, I used to be all over Twitter saying all sorts of things because I was right. just, I was passionate and I wasn't like on any just mission. Tweet, guys. Yeah. yeah, I was just, I was just speaking my piece on there. And um, I was like, Delphi is sliding very quickly to be even worse than the Maura Murray case. Mm. And a few years later, I think it is. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's nonstop coverage. 24-7, every motion, every single thing. And now, you know, they're talking about how he can't get a fair trial because of all the media. Yeah. And I think a question it's we need to ask itself is... itself in a way. Well, and, and well, who we're, caused we're, it? We're aiding it. We're, we're, we're egging it on. Exactly. Yeah. That's like, a there's shame. a time to step away. And I think in Delphi, it's right now. It absolutely is. Yeah. This is... <laughs> it, it's, it's there now. Stop being like that about it. Because now you're just only causing harm. What, what good is being done here? But I mean, it's a two way street, right? It, it, you know, freedom of speech. The same way I have sure. a right to do what I want to do, they have a right to do what they want to do. Mm -hmm. And as much as I may not like it, I have to, you know, honor that. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? 
why did the internet choose them, and what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time, and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What do you want people to take away from, if someone's listening to this and they look at what you've done and they're inspired by it and they want to do something similar, what would be your advice to them? Because it's a very difficult thing that you're doing and it comes with a lot of different factors that aren't necessarily at the forefront of what you listen to every day. And what would be your advice to someone? I mean, my first advice, I think, is like, it's a lot and be ready for that. It's like making the podcast about my sister was one of the best and worst things I've ever done. Mm-hmm. It, it was um, hell on earth creating it. I absolutely like, cried through it. I couldn't sleep. Yeah, it that? was, oh, it was fucking awful. Fucking awful. How'd and you, I was, how do you think about an edit? Oh my God. Like, how did you like d- discern? Like, were you like toggling back and forth from like being like super sad about it and then super focused or was it simultaneous? I mean, I guess it, I would switch and it was simultaneous at the same time, like just mm-hmm. depending on the day, right? Like sometimes I would do an interview and I would need to, you know, have a glass of wine, sit in the bath for four hours to recover. And other times As I one was, does. Yeah, exactly. Um, other times I felt like I was under deadline. I was like, I have to get this out now or it's never going to happen. Um, and I just got to it, you know, but I think it was easier because I was just telling my sister's story from her case file mm-hmm. and from interviews. I inserted so little of myself into that podcast, and that was by design. I didn't want people to think I was just some sad little sister or some daughter out on a mission to destroy my dad because that well, truly I mean, wasn't the case. You were, which you're not. <laughs> I feel like that should be acceptable. Well, I'm, yes. <laughs> but, I, but also, I, I respect what you're saying. Yeah. I was um, trying to be fair. And right, which also I think is important. And I think that's why you, you're where you're at today. Yeah. I mean, I've had people say like, 
you should have waited for more evidence before they arrested your dad, which first of all, not my fucking decision. Yeah, like as much as I wish it was, and it seems like it is. Yeah. It wasn't. It's like, not your I, control. Yeah, that is a hundred percent not within my control. No. Um, and again, after so many years, like what's gonna fucking happen? Yeah. Like these people die after a certain amount of time. They die with their secrets. Like you're left with two options. You either pursue it or you don't. And I couldn't live with myself not pursuing it. So I'm like, I'm glad we went to trial. Obviously, I don't love the outcome. I think mm-hmm. that my dad got off on a technicality, but I do well, think that did. my, You're yeah, right. absolutely, did. absolutely. Yeah, um, absolutely. Did. Yeah. Um, but I think my sister has justice because I, I think so the too. truth I mean, like, is out there. I see that from outside. I feel like she does yeah. because we all know that guy's a killer. Exactly. And he has to live with that. Mm-hmm. And that, that might be worse. I, I think it might be. It could be. I don't know. Like, yeah. I, I mean, I, I actually just told my dad this and he like, it stopped him in his tracks because I was like, dad, like they came to me and asked me if I wanted, like if, if they were to give you a plea deal, what I would want. And I said, let him walk if he tells us what happened. Like, I'm not here to punish him. Like, yeah. I just want fucking answers. Yeah. Like, That's let him walk. though. That's amazing. It's not about me. It's not about him. It's about just my sister and getting those answers. Like, he's 75. Mm-hmm. Like it's he doesn't have much time left anyway. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. It's like with Flo's family, they've been gaslit into insanity about yeah. what they know is true, and we've only ever uncovered information that supports that and nothing else. Yeah, and there is no incentive to do anything. Maybe until now, I'm not even convinced of that now. To be honest. Media pressure moves mountains. I don't say that just for a fucking catchphrase. Like, it's real. It's almost like a good title for, like, a podcast or something. <laughs> <laughs> almost. Almost. Um, no, but you're right. And, like, to me, that's that's the one thing that I can do. I can drum that up. I can't arrest anybody. Exactly. I can't, you know, guarantee that I find some smoking gun. Those are things that are out of my control that I will try to push in that direction but what i can do is try to get your attention and shake the trees and that's was really been the focus of my entire mindset this season is i don't want to even do another season of up and vanish if i'm not trying even harder as a, a little bit older a little bit wiser hopefully than i did last time like going even harder because i can and if I'm not doing that, then I shouldn't do it. Yeah. Well, and I think you're brave because you talk to all the bad people or people we think are bad. And I don't think a lot of people go that far. Mm-hmm. They'll talk to the families now, of course, you know, if they can. Um, but I can tell you almost nobody has ever reached out to my dad for comment. Like, I would. And you should do but it. But he probably wouldn't do it. I'd do it. Oh, he would. He would do it. He does every single interview he can. Oh, yeah. Sarah he would one, Yeah. He would 100%. <laughs> 100%. No, he came and he sat down in like his suit. He was ready to go. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. We had a phone call That's before wild. we met. He's fucking, he's so manipulative. It's yeah, he's just playing it now. He probably feels like he's all scot-free. Like, Yeah. Oh, 100%. Well, and he was like, Sarah, I have a favor to ask if we sit down and do this interview. Can I have a hug? I was like, I, yeah, I don't have to think about that. Like, obviously, fucking Let's no. Let's do the interview first. Yeah, exactly. I was like, you know, you're asking for a hug. You're doing all these things. I want honest answers. Yeah. Um, this isn't some like exchange or some sh- fucking, what are you doing? Yeah. No, he told me that I destroyed my family, that all I care about is basically money and fame. And this is just my career. And he's writing a book. So, oh, really? Uh, yeah. So I said, oh, 
is your book going to come out? It's just for himself, though, right? He's not going to put it out or anything? That's what I said. I said, so your book's going to be free. And right. he was like, what do you mean? I said, well, you're, you're sitting here talking about how I make my money off, you know, true crime podcasting and Alyssa. Is it if I did it? <laughs> Basically, I'm yeah. sure. Um, no, he wants to talk about um, how Arizona is the American corridor for sex trafficking to South America. Shut up, bro. That's ridiculous. Like, yeah. Okay. He says he's going to, he wants, he's uh, looking for donations so that he can take back all the American women from South that America. That is so telling to me as his character. Mm-hmm. Like, it almost feels like he, like you're saying, feels so bad about what he did that he's like, look over here. Mm-hmm. And it's like, <laughs> which we have a book about your daughter, man. He said almost nothing she? about her. Yeah, exactly. What the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. No, he's he's all about how um, the Phoenix police are turning families against each other. And that's what happened here. And I was so badly manipulated uh, by the Phoenix Police Department that it caused me to destroy my life. He's just, I mean, he just, he has to shape his own reality or else he yeah, can't live in it. Exactly. Like he is just drinking his own sauce at this point, right? I mean, he's, he, be- he believes his own lies basically probably, right? Yeah. To a degree. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, a few years ago we met and he was like, well, Sarah, you know, I was talking about like why, you know, I was running wild. You didn't care. And he was like, well, if you were doing bad things, I didn't know about it, which give me a fucking break. Um, and so in this meeting, he was like, well, you were doing all those bad things. You had that drug dealer boyfriend. And it's like, so you did flipping now. it on you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the most manipulative shit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you don't need me to point that out. Um, <laughs> I'm just like, fuck that guy. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But I mean, it all goes back to like kudos to talking to the bad people because not everybody will. Thank and that, it's a hard thing to do. It is I hard. Think. And it's, you know, and also there's so much you don't know when you're going into that. You don't know definitively what is true or not true. And you have to lean into your instincts a lot. And even if they did or didn't participate in some sort of crime that you think they may be associated with, they might still be a really bad person yeah. and a really dangerous person who may be even more upset that you're here for some, <laughs> for some other reason. Um, but yeah, I, I just... I feel like, in a way, it sounds corny, but it's my responsibility at this point. If I'm going to continue to make investigative true crime podcasts and take you through a story like that, that I'm putting myself in positions like that, or willing to, or someone else should do it. Yeah, and absolutely. I'm not saying that 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 feels awesome all the time. Yeah, but I'm saying it's that scary. like it's okay. But like I, I feel like I that's how I sleep at night. Yeah, is knowing that like I'm doing as much as I can and pushing my comfort zone every single time. And maybe this time it gets us that much closer. And that's it was right there. But I just needed to push a little harder or something. Yeah. That's the whole thing, right? You see something terrible in the world and you can either be upset about it or you can do something about it. Mm-hmm. There's that optimism again. I know. Yeah. It, do you ever get mad? Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, I get mad. I mean, it takes me a lot to push me to the edge and get mad. Um, a lot of the times I feel like I just get like passionate, right? Like I remember okay. in my sister's case, um, they started. So I'd been the family contact since I was a teenager. So for like 20 years, something insane. And um, they started not giving me information and only giving information to my sister's biological father, who was never in her life. That's weird. Yeah. And also, so I, that's not it. Yeah. Don't do that. 
it was bull. They were just sick of dealing with me. Um, and so I called and I wanted to file a formal complaint because they were no longer giving me information <laughs> sure. and giving it to this guy with no legal um, precedence over Alyssa. And he just kept saying, ma'am, are you a trained detective? But are you a trained detective? Are you a trained detective? Um, and it was like the worst fucking phone call I'd ever what? been on. And so I made merch that said trained detective. And that's right. like my best selling merch now. That's amazing. Uh, so I try to turn it into something like it, it, it seems really sassy and spiteful. And Sarah it probably is. It? Yeah, that's, yeah. Bad. that's bad. That's bad. <laughs> I had to. I mean, but it's again, what do you do? Like, no, but like that to me, I, that's what you do. Yeah. Call it for what it is. Like, I like how you flip things on its nose. Yeah. Um, You know, I, I'd like to think. I like to think that I, I try to do that too, where it's like, call it for what it is. Mm-hmm. Don't sugarcoat it. You can, I think just being transparent in that way is is more powerful than anything else. And it's freeing, isn't it? It's freeing. Also, like, <laughs> guys, you can do it too. <laughs> <laughs> just be on it. You yeah, know, quit like, exhausting your own selves. Yeah. yeah. Especially in ethics and true crime. Like, I try to admit my mistakes as much as I can. Oh, you yeah, know? for sure. I did an episode early on about Elizabeth Smart and I had another survivor come to me and was like, that's not cool to tell somebody else's story. Mm. And I was like, you're fucking 100 percent right. I like apologized to Elizabeth Smart. You know what I mean? Like and Mm -hmm. I made an episode and talked about it. I was like, I did the wrong thing. Yeah. And this is how I corrected it. And we're learning each and every day. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, it's that's okay too. Like, yeah. How else do we learn? Right. It's not about being right. (laughs) It's about... And also, we're talking about such a gray space at this point that's changed so much since 2016 and 2019 when we both started in true crime podcasting. It's different. And I feel like the rules are still writing themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, like they've gone through a whole bunch and things have changed since it first was. A part of me feels like now it's sort of like there's going to have to be some sort of equilibrium moment because there's a lot of a lot of people that aren't really giving it that care and people who are who are drowned out by those who aren't yeah i mean it's a popular industry and you're going to attract people because Mm -hmm. there's money and fame to be had i mean if you look at like this great migration from youtube right there were all these beauty youtubers that when beauty faded out they became true crime youtubers because that's what was popular yeah Yeah, and like no shade to them also some of them are really good yeah absolutely i don't even wear makeup but (laughs) now i want to yeah Yeah. i mean it's just it's just how the world is when something is popular and there's you know money or fame to be had people are going to flock to it Mm -hmm. but i think that it naturally weeds it weeds itself out right like the good people stay and the bad people don't I feel that 100%. And a part of me does feel like I need to, just for me, keep setting the bar for me. Yeah. Or else I fell off and didn't continue pushing this genre into a better place or something. Yeah. I but, don't know. Does but that how make do you, Yes, but how do you keep up that momentum? Oh, my God. Is the question, right? I mean... Oh my God. No idea. <laughs> I thought you. I thought you were gonna tell me that. Um, you just gotta. You gotta find it somewhere. You know, sometimes you find it from different places. You, you don't like. I don't find it from the same places that I used to, like in the very, very beginning. Yeah. Because things are things have changed. Things are different in my life. I've learned a lot. I'm. I've changed. I've evolved. Uh, the world's different. Yeah. Um. So not all of those not all the ways that I, I used to find inspiration are the exact same, but 
I think that's also part of the evolution is evolving your inspiration. Um, and some things always remain true and constant. And I just try to latch onto those and just try to, I don't know, challenge myself and, and try to find joy in that, to be honest. There's no innovation in staying the same and doing right. the same thing that everybody else does. Make up scripted stories if that's the case. Right. What am I doing differently? How am I approaching? Why why should I do this if I'm just going to cursory level tell a story and rehash all this tragic shit? Yeah. That I have no interest in that. Same. So yeah, and like I, I admire you for that. And I admire you for that. Well, thank you. And like <laughs> it's cool to see you. like taking that and having taken that to other stories and collaborations with other people and and making hit shows and doing both right like and really kind of creating that perfect storm that perfect recipe that is what i think it takes to actually move the needle which is super cool so good job hey thanks i'm trying I will say that, you know, Julie Murray did all the heavy lifting. You know what I mean? Shout out to her, too. Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. I've never met her, but she sounds amazing. She's so strong for doing this. And damn, amazing storyteller. And it's just, you feel something different when you hear her talk. She's a natural. Yeah. An absolute natural. And I was not. So I can can say that confidently. I was 100% not a natural. Nor was I. She is. No, she's got it. Um, It's super powerful i hope i get to meet her one day um hopefully she hears this but she is amazing um it's so cool to see and even cooler to see in collaboration with you and just i love the story and yeah i i know you're gonna continue to do dope things so thank you i hope so i just want to keep helping people well i that's admirable so i think it comes across um but yeah thank you for being here this has oh, been fun. Yeah. I've been all over the place, but hey. I know. I think, I think we made a podcast. I think we did make a podcast. Yeah. Is this what podcasters do? Uh, allegedly, yeah. <laughs> then we edit out all the, you know, cancelable shit we said. And then, or I said. Yeah. Yeah. Only I said that. Um, <laughs> but you'll never hear it. <laughs> Too funny. Talking to Death is a production of Tenderfoot TV and iHeart Podcast. Created and hosted by Payne Lindsay. For Tenderfoot TV, executive producers are Payne Lindsay and Donald Albright. Co-executive producer is Mike Rooney. For iHeart Podcasts, executive producers are Matt Frederick and Alex Williams. With original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Additional production by Mike Rooney, Dylan Harrington, Sean Nurney, Dayton Cole, and Gustav Wilde for Cohedo. Production support by Tracy Kaplan, Mara Davis, and Trevor Young. Mixing and mastering by Cooper Skinner and Dayton Cole. Our cover art was created by Rob Sheridan. Check out our website, talkingtodeathpodcast.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talking to Death. This series is released weekly, absolutely free. But if you want ad-free listening and exclusive bonuses, you can subscribe to Tinderfoot Plus on Apple Podcasts or go to tinderfootplus.com. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them 
And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.